0: Hey everyone this is your boy captain hunter i want to thank you guys once again for tuning in really really appreciate it now usually i do not do these type of introductions for uh the facebook lives and just as a little side Reminder, uh, remember that we do Facebook Lives every Monday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Always have always try to have a different guest or just speak about relevant uh, issues and things like that. So um, usually I do not do these types of introductions, but I wanted to thank you all so much for tuning in, uh, for subscribing, sharing, and liking, and, and to remind you all to do that. Um, just recently I got a, a little note from uh, some uh, podcasters um, association that... Uh, that kind of keeps the tabs on podcasts and my podcast is growing actually on, uh, Apple podcasts. Um, so the numbers are increasing and I really, really appreciate you all sharing, subscribing, liking, and of course for tuning in. So please continue to keep up the good work. If there's an episode that you like or, or anything like that. Just make sure that you are telling your friends and your neighbors and your family members and coworkers about, about what we got going on over here at Captain Hunter's podcast. So today we're going to be speaking with Kelly Hope. Uh, so she has her doctorate and a really, really smart lady. And I really appreciate her coming on. Another reason I want to do this introduction is because of course we know now, as I record this, that, uh, Joe Biden and his running mate, Ms. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, are the president elect and vice president elect respectively. And so, uh, I wanted to, you know, I did this show with Miss, Uh, with Dr. Hope, um, about Um, Just the importance of women in academia and uh, the the strides that women are making just in life and and in general. And so uh, I I thought it would be a great time to release this episode. Uh, Of course, it's already on Facebook, but just to release the audio version of this, I thought was very, very important concerning the times that we live in. So if you're black, uh, we've had a black president. Uh, we've had a, now we've had a black and South, East, South Asian uh, mixed uh, uh, woman as the VP, very, very proud of the accomplishments of, of these particular people. We've got more mayors, more uh, and more elected officials going on and growing on in this country. I did an episode with another doctor, Dr. Turner, uh, who uh, just talked about the importance of, of black people entering into uh, the medical field. So all these are great, great episodes, and I really want to encourage people to continue to go on and to grow on. Uh, so to my daughter and to everyone else's daughter, whether you're black or white, Hispanic, uh, and no matter what or who you are, uh, you can do it, you can thrive and you can go forward. Uh, in life we just have to have the chains taken off of us have re- remove the restrictions and there's nothing that we can't do so uh, that's the reason I want to do this little introduction so as we go close out with the introduction here uh, remember to rate, subscribe and share please consider supporting Captain Hunter's podcast of course the greatest thing you can do to support is to subscribe share and like but also consider uh, giving that financial donation a dollar an episode, uh, $5 a month uh, $50 for the year, hundred dollars for the year, whatever you can do to help to this podcast, continue to go and to grow. I really, really appreciate it. We have a lot of great episodes coming up. Uh, this, as I record, this is now this November, 2020, I'm taking the month of December off, but don't worry. I got episodes already booked up until, uh, it already booked for january uh 2021 all the way up into february 2021 so we got a lot of great episodes and i'm always looking for more guests more uh more suggestions uh for topics and everything like that so uh i'm not going to bore you anymore here is the interview interview with dr kelly hope so yeah so i'm not very familiar with new haven there's a new there's a new hall section right as a kid I would would go down to the Whaley Avenue section, right, because there was a church off of there, it was in this, uh, Trinity Temple Church, and mm-hmm. we would go there all the time as as kids. Mm-hmm. Well, we would go there all the time as part of my my church, and Waterbury would go there fellowship with that particular church. But that was pretty much all I know about New Haven. Of course, the Wharf section, you know, the, the
1: uh, Long Wharf, you know, okay, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah
0: Long Wharf section. But I don't know, I don't know too much about the section. The different
1: territory. areas and sections of the city. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you have the New Hallville section, you have the Hill section, you have um a, a very various sections in the city of New Haven. And um, I was fortunate and blessed enough to grow up in the New Hallville section. So
0: now is um, that a nicer part of town?
1: Well, it's a nice part of town for me. It's my neighborhood. It's my hood. So, <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> but most folks will know Science Park. Yale is, is within close proximity. It's right in the middle of uh, Alberta. Magnus is nearby. Yale is nearby. And, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed growing up <laughs> in the New okay. section. However, uh, you know, there is violence, as is with most urban areas. But, absolutely, New Hullville,
0: It's my home now. Absolutely. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So we got a couple of viewers. I want to say hello to them. Uh, I'm going to put this banner up because we cannot see uh, the the people who are joining. I say that all the time, but I just want to make sure I say it again. Uh, So I'm going to put this banner up. So thank you for joining us. If you want your name said or if you have a comment or question, make sure that you chime in because I can't see who's here, you know, the, the particular program that we are using. So I wanna say hello and thank you to my uh, friend here, my new friend, Dr. Kelly Hope. And I really, really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast and um, agreeing to be here and share your wisdom and knowledge. And thank you and welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. I am excited to be here and definitely grateful and thankful for connecting and meeting you and you giving me the opportunity to chat with you for a little bit. And um, I'm just excited or wherever this conversation is going to go and what we're going to get into on this evening. So folks, come on in the room, share, <laughs> and have your people and tell them to come on in here and let's get into some robust conversation.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to say hello to Latricia Brumell. Thank you so okay. much for uh, for coming on in. Really, really appreciate it. Um, so let's, let's talk about how we met. So uh, we met at a community center in Waterbury where you were teaching uh, African-American and Latino history to a community uh, center there. Can you tell us a little bit about that work that you are doing?
1: Absolutely. So I met Warren Leach in, in, um, from out of Waterbury and he was looking for a facilitator to put on classes for our young people, our middle and high schoolers ab- around African-American studies and uh, Latinx studies. And so I, uh, Responded to his call, looking for a facilitator, and he and I connected. And one of the things that was important for me and the reason why I reached out about the initiative he was launching through the ungroup was because I realized that our history, our literature, the things about Black and brown culture is usually sprinkled in the curriculum in our schools. And so to have the opportunity to spend eight weeks, to spend four weeks, to spend any amount of time solely focusing on that was right up my alley. And so I spent um, a number of weeks, about eight weeks, working with young people and teaching them about the history Pre enslavement, because that's really important. Uh, so we started with talking about African origins of civilization, and then we journeyed into the African American and Latino spe- experience here in the U.S. So it was, um, it is, it, it, it is a great program that Warren has in Waterbury.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I, I met up with him. We did a conversation. We um, so I would advise and hope that anyone else would go and listen to the episode that I did with. Brother Warren Leach, really appreciate him uh and all the work that he's doing with the Ungroup. Very, very fascinating. I want to say one again hello to Debbie Rogerio much
1: Debbie. Yes, uh, that's
0: my mom. I, okay, I'm, i hope I'm saying the name right. I hate I hate butchering people's names. So um so so you that's that's a fascinating uh what you talked about. It, did you major in that in, in school as far as African American history and all that?
1: No, so my undergraduate major is in English, English education. My master's is in, is in English education. I also have studies in urban studies and then my doctorate is in organizational leadership. And so my love for History and specifically the thing about what I did in Waterbury is we talked about a lot about history, but I rooted it also in literature as well, because literature, I believe, is a way to get in and talk about historical things. But um, my love for history, black history and extending into Latino and Latinx history came from my parents And from, I had a teacher, his name was Mr. Gibson in high school, and he challenged us in 10th grade to learn about our history. And so it evolved over the years, but my major isn't in history. It's in English and organizational leadership.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Hello to my good friend, Tiffany. Thanks once again for for joining in. So I wanted to ask you, um, a lot of times, um, and I asked Warren this, uh, this ungroup that he has, um, and- the program that's going on there. It's not just for African American uh and Latino kids, right? White kids can join. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, what talk about the importance of all persons uh knowing African American history, Latino history. Talk about it's not just for for black people, right? It's not just your history, you just go out and learn it. Everyone should learn this, right? Or am I misstating that?
1: No, I believe you're absolutely correct in in, you know, your line of thinking and saying that everyone should learn about the histories of all people. Uh, The United States of America is a melting pot of a number of different races, ethnicities, creeds, and origins. And so learning about all histories is absolutely important and imperative. I will say specifically, though, that it is Equally as important, if not more important for our Black and Brown children, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, community folks to learn about our history because it directly impacts what we do today and how we interact with one another today. But for non-Black, non-Brown folk, it's equally as important for them to learn and to come into the room and be willing to listen and learn about our histories. Why? Because we will be, the, we will then be able to, in my belief, begin to understand why some community groups, some groups are able to attain and obtain certain things while others still are striving to get. We'll begin to empathize a little bit more with one another. We'll begin to find that we all have some commonalities and through our commonalities, we can find ways to be um, allies to each other, but then also to find our ways to support And also to change our mindset, because sometimes when you get in the room and you start learning about others, you'll find, oh, wow. Wait a minute. That is a a blind spot in my own line of thinking that I didn't think about. And so I may very well have to challenge my own self, my own thinking as we move forward. So it's for everyone. Absolutely. Non black and brown as it is for black and brown folk. Most definitely.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to say hello to, uh, Rich Sarudi. Uh, thank you so much, uh, for turning in. Debbie chimed in, uh, with yes. So you were preaching something powerful there. <laughs> uh, Lucille, hello to her. She's saying the job, Kelly. <laughs> and, uh, Latricia Brunel is saying knowledge is power. Learn. Absolutely. And, uh, Marilyn Thomas is and Thomas' Thomas's beauty and intellect. Um, thank you so much, but I haven't begun to sp- speak yet. Oh, oh, wait, wait, you're talking about my guest. Oh, okay. Um, so,
1: <laughs> I think she was talking about. I,
0: I, yeah, know. yeah, I, I get that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to talk, let's talk about a little bit about what you do right now, right? You work at a school system in uh, New Haven, uh, or as well, we'll just call it New Haven. Uh, so, <laughs> so you work at a school system in New Haven. <laughs> and so tell us a little bit about what you do there.
1: Yeah, so I am actually a English teacher. I'm an English teacher at a public high school in New Haven, and I'm also an adjunct professor at a community college in Bridgeport. So I see and have experience teaching both at the post-secondary level and at the secondary level. And um, I teach 10th grade primarily, but I also have an African-American literature elective where I teach 11th and 12th graders. And so I am able to see students coming in to our high schools and then exiting into our colleges. And if they go to, you know, my particular community college, it may be likely that I will also see them in the college setting as well. And um, that was important for me, important for me to teach at the high school level because I wanted to be able to see in real time, what happens in our high school classrooms, in our public education classrooms, in order for me to become a better educator, and in order for me to be able to teach our young people and prepare them for this life after school, you know? So that's what I'm doing in New Haven.
0: So there's been much to do and much to say about public education. What are you seeing, right, in in, uh, public education? Uh, In the inner city, you're teaching mostly in inner city, right? New Haven, absolutely,
1: inner city.
0: Right, so you're teaching mostly in inner city. What What is your thoughts about what's going on in the education system Um, from from kids doing their homework to parent uh, uh, involvement to uh, the finances behind it? Tell us about all that kind of stuff that was going on in public
1: education. Okay, so let me start here by saying that I'm a a product, a proud product of the New Haven public school system. And when I was looking to go back into the um, public education system to teach, I made sure that I looked at New Haven and applied to New Haven. So let me start there. And then I'll say that one thing that I've noticed about my students and students that I come in contact with is that, all of our families, they want what's best for their for their children. Our teachers, our educators, our administrators, we want what's best for our children. And what that means is that there are some families that have the wherewithal and they know how to advocate. And when I say know how to, I mean that they are comfortable expressing their needs and their desires and their wants for their children. And so that looks like sending emails, requesting conferences outside of parent-teacher meetings and and making time to have phone calls with the teachers. I see that a lot. And so there is a misconception, I believe, sometimes that when you're looking in the inner city, specifically in New Haven and other areas that may be, um, the demographics may be the same, we have families and parents that are not engaged and don't care. Now, while that may be true in some areas, that is not, in my opinion, the the bulk of our parents and our families. We have parents that are concerned about their children's education and their well being, and are willing to hold us teachers to the fire to make sure that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. So I'll say that. I will also say though, on the other side of that, we do have some students, and there's a, a sub-self population of students, where truancy and excessive absenteeism is rampant, and that directly reflects on how the students learn, how they show up in our classroom, and also how they the work they produce. And so I think that those two things, although one is on one spectrum with the parents and then the other on the students, they work hand-in-hand, hand because I can definitely see a direct connection when we have parents who are on top and they're emailing and they're on and they're checking reads and they're responding and students who may not have as much support in the community or at home who may not show up to school as often as we'd like and it shows in their not turning in their homework and or not understanding the concepts that we're teaching but overall um Collectively, I think our students, our parents, and our teachers and administrators want what's best, and we are doing what we can to make sure that we are teaching and educating our children. And COVID, you know, we haven't even gone there yet, but COVID has definitely um, illuminated some disparities as it relates to students who have access Versus students who don't have access, and that we can actually liken to access in general in our communities. When we're talking about urban areas, and particularly in New Haven, and I would assume in, in places like Waterbury, Waterbury as well, that there are um, discrepancies in things that people need that they don't readily have access to, and it's the same in the classroom. And COVID. It, actually illuminated that for us in a way that we are now realizing that the, the digital divide has always been there and we need to um, make sure that we are doing what we can to make sure that all of our students have access to the information.
0: Very, That's very well said. So before we get to the COVID thing, let's, let's talk about pre-COVID mm-hmm. and how we fix some of the problems that you mentioned, right? The kids that are, the, the parents that are coming from, uh, uh, you know, good, good, Homes, right? Those parents are pushing their kids, right? We get that, right? They're emailing, they're in contact. What do you do, or how do you would you encourage uh, those who don't have that support system of, of involved parents?
1: So, first let me say that I would I wouldn't say good homes, because then that wouldn't imply that the other homes are bad homes. I will say that we do know based on trends in education, that there are homes where you may not have, let's say, two parents. Now, that doesn't mean that a a home that has two parents is a good home and a home that doesn't have two parents is a bad home. Absolutely not. What that may mean, though, is that the supports that folks may need to help Uh, make sure that students are doing their homework, to help explain, may not always be readily available. And so that's important to note. And so because those extra support systems, when a parent may be working, or parents may be working, and there may not be grandparents or the community around, you know, I grew up in an era where it was the, the entire community had a hand in making sure we did what we needed to do and so if i was out on in the front of my house cutting up then i could rest assured that someone was going to come out their house and you know yell at me and tell me to go inside or what have you and so we're living in an age now where we're talking about parents absolutely and what we're seeing with their kids but If a parent has to work and there is no extra support and that sense of community and community support is not there to help guide the student and also help the parent out, then I think we see a direct connection between the student performing. And so what I would say is that one, we do need to um, provide more opportunities and spaces, I would say for community members to feel comfortable speaking and helping their community, their neighbors. And I think that there's been a change, a shift with the comfortability level based on folks not feeling safe to say, hey, I'm here to help and folks not feeling safe to accept the help. And so I would say that's one, getting back to being able to be um, a place where we're actually neighborhoods and neighborly to one another. Secondly, I think Another thing that's important when we're talking about parents and and students who are struggling to come to school and struggling with basic needs, you know, we're talking about food insecurities that we also see in the classroom. I didn't mention that, but food insecurities. I keep snacks in my office. I mean, in my office, in my classroom. I had an office before, but in my classroom, I keep food so students know that they can come and ask uh, if I have anything and then I'll tell them where to get it. And so I think even that, is a part of this whole helping our children, helping our parents. And um, those are are two things, community involvement, and then also realizing that there are discrepancies and deficiencies, if you will, in some of our communities, even though um, parents and families are doing the best that they can. And so I think it's up to the rest of us to be able to pitch in, and I believe churches and um, teachers—we all are doing that. So, um, those will be two things um, that I would suggest that we start looking at doing.
0: Uh, absolutely. So I'll, let's 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 dive a little bit more into um, the community aspect of it, and I, I enjoy what you said uh, about um, you know that those members of the community who would be there to help facilitate or or help to, you know, make sure that people kept stayed in line. And I, to a certain degree, I grew up in that same type of era, I'm probably a lot older than you, but <laughs> I grew up in that same type of era where the community helped out and said, right. And the community was not afraid to say, listen, either you get to where you're supposed to be, or I'm going to tell your mother on you. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that I think that we would agree. And a lot of pe- other people would agree that, that that, that system has been lost. How do we get that back or is it gone forever? What, what's your opinions about that?
1: I don't think it's gone forever. I think one of the things, because we're talking here about education, one of the things I also think is um, we've gotten kind of away from is teachers being in the community. I will never forget uh, what this past school year, I had a conversation with the student and our initial conversation didn't start off on the best foot. In fact, the student pushed by me to get into my classroom and my response to him was, oh, okay, you really going to just push by me as if I'm not standing in the doorway? And he stopped and looked at me. And then another student who I had a previous conversation with said to to him, you know, she's from Neville, she's not going to play that, right? And so in that moment, because I identified with their communities, it changed the way our conversation occurred. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to be from the community. Every teacher needs to be from the community that they're serving. However, I will say that there is a level of connection that happens. And so there's a term that's used in higher education and in education across, and it's called other mothering. And it's this idea that, and it's not about gender, um, but it's about this idea that we are all or we all have the ability to be a mother or or father figure or play that role for young people and students in our lives and so for me i think that as a teacher in our classrooms it is a great way and a great place for us to begin to start that that piece of the community getting involved and also not being afraid to go to those social events that are happening in the community. There are, in these days, there are um, rallies, there are talks that are happening, there are um, a number of different community things that are happening, and to show up to a basketball game, to show up to a football game, so that students and families and parents can see you there and begin to interact in a, in a way outside of a the area where you may be in an authority role is very important, I think. And so those are some ways in which that can be done.
0: So before the uh, police officers and, um, uh, teachers, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. as well as doctors and dentists and all that used to live in the, in their communities, is that something that you would advocate for or be in agreement with that, that they, they live somewhere close to the communities to, in order to have greater access to these different community events, uh, even after school programs for for helping uh, kids who are having trouble reading, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What's your thoughts about that?
1: I think, yes, I think living close to the community, but even if there is a professional and or a community member, let's say they're not necessarily from the particular community, let's say New Haven, Hamden, Waterbury, wherever, but they have a desire to get involved. A lot of our school systems have school volunteer programs where you can contact Those um, associations and get involved and say, hey, is there a read aloud day happening? I'd like to come in and read to the children. And even if they don't live in those particular neighborhoods, I would say it's it's great to live in those neighborhoods. But if you don't live in those neighborhoods to still go the extra mile and attend the events in those neighborhoods is equally as important. that's for any professional um, because it begins, you begin to develop rapport. Once you start seeing, you know, a person at one event and then you see them again and then you begin to say, oh, OK, that name, I remember that name. And now you're able to connect the name to a face. And then you are then you begin to identify personalities and then you begin to develop rapport. And when you have rapport, then you're able to provide correction. I think that's what we're missing, you hit the, the, the step of developing rapport. It's kind of difficult to correct someone when you see them going down the wrong path or maybe doing wrong, or even if they need help, to give help if you haven't first developed that relationship and that rapport with them. That's important, I think, no matter what. If you're a teacher, um, a police officer, doctor, whomever, I think developing that rapport and that relationship to the community is vital.
0: Absolutely. Just want to say and and acknowledge some people that uh, popped in. I think I got this one already. Lucille said, good job, Kelly. Latricia, one else acknowledges power, learn. Uh, Rich gave the hand waves. Sybonae, my good friend from way back, said, hey, Uh, Jerome Hauser says, do your thing, cuz. I need to have you on here all the time. You got all these people following me. Mo Shaw says, yes, just keep up the great work. Uh, Marilyn... um, Yes, the pandemic has highlighted many inequalities and disparities in our communities as compared to some others. And I, that's going to be the next point I want to get to. Uh, we all have a moral duty to help our communities, helping in whatever way we can, even if it's one person that, and it cuts off right there. I'm not sure what else you wrote there. Uh, community involvement is so important by Debbie. Uh, and so true. Uh, the need to know that you care. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get to the idea of the panic, right? Uh, pandemic comes in. And as you mentioned before, uh, it, uh, kind of sent a shockwave, obviously to the U.S. and to the world. It was everything's closing down. And we talked about, uh, and you talked about the inequalities that were manifested and many inequalities were manifested in the health, in healthcare, right? All these people who don't have healthcare and who are dying and racking up enormous, uh, um, hospital bills as well as uh, these inequalities and in persons who don't have access to the internet, uh, you know, their only internet uh, mobile devices a phone, uh, you know, to try and do all this homework on a little phone and all that kind of stuff. So, I don't want to talk about it. I want you to talk about all that type of stuff.
1: Absolutely. You highlighted for (laughs) sure. One of the main things in March when a number of our schools were forced to go to remote learning, we realized that there were students who were, in fact, working and completing assignments on cell phones. And one of the things that I will say about my particular school is that already embedded in the way we teach, the way we engage our students. It, we had Chromebooks available and we had one-to-one Chromebooks available for our students in our classrooms. And so what, that that was one thing that was, I would say for my school that was um, a bonus for us or a plus for us. However, that wasn't the case across the country. And we saw a number... A number of students that did not have the ability to access the information and in the in the knowledge that we were trying to impart, and so we also saw for the first time on a, a large scale districts who were scrambling to make copies and have packets of information available so that students can grab packets and then go home and complete the packets. We saw um, for the first time uh, in in mass we saw teachers. Trying to figure out how to navigate teaching, also navigating what's happening with their own families and personal lives and their own students and trying to balance it all, all at the same time. Now, these things aren't new. You know, teachers have been balancing working and family and work-life balance, if there is such a thing, um, for Forever, that that isn't new. However, we're at a place now with the pandemic and the multiple pandemics that are happening right now, um, where we are all experiencing these things simultaneously, and so with that came added pressure, if you will, with how our students are able to get on their laptops, their Chromebooks, and access our classrooms. And then you have to add into or think about our students who are um, they have IEPs and um, individualized educational programs and or they have they, they have special needs and learning um, requires extra, Extra, um, extra attention. They require extra attention when you are teaching them and they require differentiation of lessons. And so all of these things you have to take into consideration and this pandemic. And when it hit, it illuminated all of these various things that our students need and it challenged us to step up to the plate. And I will say in the time that we had, we stepped up to the plate and did the best that we can. And moving forward still, we are still trying to figure out how to best engage and teach our children. And that has been a conversation in and of itself because there's talk about defunding. If schools don't go back full term, five days a week, there are very real concerns about returning back five days a week to the classroom for students, parents, and teachers. folks are concerned about that. I, for one, am concerned about returning back to the classroom five days a week full time. You know, I have anywhere from 80 to 120 students. And the truth of the matter is, is that that's a lot of contact. And what does that mean when we're talking about social distancing? How does that look? And, um, all of those things, how our classrooms are set up, how we engage with our students. And it's not just teaching the way some of us may remember, where everyone sits in a row and everyone faces the the chalkboard, if it was back in the day, or the whiteboard, and you just take notes and then you have a test to see whether or not you know what you what you learned. No, this is about engagement. It's about group work. It's about making sure students are able to be up and mobilize, and walking around, and interacting, and interacting with one another. And so, how does that look in our classroom? We don't want students to just be compliant with doing what we're asking them to do. We want them to be able to engage in the learning process. And so, COVID and this pandemic um, around COVID nineteen has forced us to think about how we're going to engage in very real and meaningful learning and teaching for our students come the fall in just a few short weeks so all of those things
0: I would assume that that there's been meetings uh, about uh, how to do engage with all this stuff that you just mentioned um, how are the meetings been going or in what's what's the latest and greatest with those types of meetings
1: So there are meetings. And in fact, I have been tuning into the governor's press conferences and I have been attending uh, meetings in my own district. And the conversations are around what I, I, I just spoke. And it is trying to determine the best course of action with returning back into the classrooms for our secondary Um, education for our our, our public school. And so when we're talking about colleges in the, the state of Connecticut, our colleges and universities, for the most part, at least our public institutions, for the most part are doing blended. There are majority of our classes or a good amount of our classes will be held online, but there will be some classes that are held in person for our colleges and universities. But when we're talking about our K through 12 classrooms, the conversation is, okay, do we go back on a hybrid model where students are attending? You'll have one population of students, half of the students will attend, will attend classes two days a week. And then you'll have the other half of the stu- the students attend the other two days a week. And then there will be a one day prep for teachers. And um, or do we go back full time, five days a week, all students as suggested or uh, mandated, if you will, by the current administration, um, federal administration. And those have been the conversations. What is the best thing to do? We understand that connected to the economy is schools. And so in order for parents to go back to work, in most cases, schools need to be open and some would challenge that um, our schools shouldn't be used as a daycare center, but they are places of learning. And so it, it shouldn't be upon the teachers and the schools to be open in order to get parents back to work. However, in our urban areas, we do know that for the most part, a number of our families need the schools to be open. And so that's been the topic of conversation. That and also making sure that we have Our teacher trained and that we know how to use the various learning management systems and technologies to engage students to the best of our ability. So that's really that's been the bulk of the conversation. When do we open? How do we open? And how do we make sure that our students have devices and not only Chromebooks and um, in some districts they are doing iPads, but Chromebooks for students to learn, but that they have hotspots. Because they can have the Chromebook, but if they don't have access to internet, then it's irrelevant. So making sure that our students have access to the internet that they'll need in order to receive the learning if remote learning is necessary.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to just kind of backtrack for a second here. We talked about, uh, uh, at the beginning we talked about the food, uh, you know, different homes, and we showed, to talk about the inequalities. Um, I want just want you to You to address that again with the food, you know, because many kids depend on school lunches, sadly, for, to get some of their nourishment. You know, how has that been as a problem? And, um, it's also talked about the kids with the IEPs. Um, and so how how do you get the kids who need extra help that extra help that they need? Right. If they're, they're not in the classroom setting, how are they getting the help, extra help that they would need?
1: So let me, let me say this. I am a teacher. I'm not an administrator. I am not a person that is able to make those type of decisions, nor am I really one that's at the table. However, I will say I I was an administrator at the collegiate level for about 15 years before transitioning to teach high school. So with that, um, grace, I will ask, I will posit this. I will say that, um, as far as the food is concerned, many districts were still handing out food to students and folks in the community at various locations. So that was something that hasn't stopped. And also, one of the things that we also saw, and this is a, you know, shout out to the churches, um, specifically at my church, St. Matthew's, I will shout them out. And the number of churches in, you know, throughout the state, they have been giving out food and holding drives as well. But our schools have been giving out lunches and providing meals for our students so that that didn't that did not stop. Okay, Okay. so that's one thing. Um, The other thing, though, when we're talking about making sure that our students that have special needs, our students that need a heightened level of differentiation and instruction, the, the we still have our resource teachers which are special education teachers that provide those additional supports. We have um, the ability in, let's say, Google, Google Suites. A lot of districts are using Google Classroom, which is um, a component of the Google Suite. And you're able to differentiate how let's say a handout looks you're able to record videos a lot of teachers including myself were having one-on-one meetings with students and we were doing um having zoom calls and google meets with students and talking to parents to see okay how can we better support what you know, what what you're seeing at home, and so it looks very different than it would if we were in classroom in a traditional classroom setting. But those supports are still there. There, from what I've heard from some parents, there's definitely work that needed to be done. But when we think about closing, uh, I believe it was around March 12th for us in New Haven, closing abruptly at March 12th and not going back. Um, you know, it looks dramatically different than us now moving forward saying, OK, these are the challenges or the opportunities that we identified from the, the, the last last academic year. And so these are the ways that we're going to uh, be better. And so that's making sure that, one, we have set times where we are meeting with those individual students who need those extra supports. For learning.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you for that. And let's see, I just want to get more people in here. Uh, Kalia, Kalia, all right, says, well done, Dr. Hope. Cookie, Kalia, Kalia mm-hmm. am I saying that? Kalia? 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 Kalia. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Cookie McCleary Blackwell says, excellent conversation, Dr. Hope. Um, and Marilyn and Thomas says, I believe students have to be able to see themselves as able to succeed in society. Some have limited support resources and therefore lack motivation and hope. Can you right. comment on that, those who don't see themselves lacking motivation and hope?
1: Absolutely. One of the things that has been coming up in conversation and then I'll come back around to that, but has been this idea, folks have been saying, teachers have been saying that they're going to wear scrubs into the classroom <laughs> in order to pass my suits. Yeah, <laughs> in order to help with say, their attire. And so we're already mandated to wear masks. And in some districts, they're also going to be wearing face shields. So you have masks, you have face shields, and some teachers are now opting to wear scrubs. And I'm in a chat or a Facebook group with some educators. And I said, absolutely not I will not wear scrubs. And a part of that is I have no issue with scrubs at all. (laughs) However, how I show up into my classroom is very important. I am a black woman. I teach in New Haven. And how I walk into my classroom, how I show up, how I present myself is very important. One for my my younger female students. And also for my male students, but for my female students specifically, when I walk into the classroom and they meet me and they say, and I introduce myself, I'm Dr. Hope. And they say, well, can we call you Miss Hope? And I say, no, you can call me Dr. Hope or why? And my response is, I'm Dr. Hope because I earned that degree and (laughs) Hope is connected to my marital status. So whether I'm married or not, I will be Dr. Fill in the blank. And so- That is important. So when we're talking about seeing themselves as a black woman, it is important for me teaching black and brown students to show up in my authentic self. And by doing that, that provides motivation. I've seen that firsthand at the high school level and also at the college level. So to walk into a room and to be able to have a conversation using standard English and then also to be able to switch Folks will say cold switching to be able to switch and have a conversation with my students using African-American vernacular. Some folks would may have called the Ebonics back in the day, but to be able to code switch and have that conversation provides an opportunity for them to say, ah, I can be both. I, I I am good where I am. I can learn and still not lose that piece of me. And so providing that motivation. And also, it also gives them hope saying that, okay, this is attainable. This is doable because as a teacher, yes, I'm teaching the material. However, I'm also speaking to their inner parts, their inner spirit to say, yes, you're doing this now. However, you don't have to do that. Straighten up. That's unacceptable in my classroom. I expect more of you. You are better than that. So even affirming, that provides motivation, that provides hope. So absolutely, I agree with Ms. Annette wholeheartedly in her comment.
0: So have many kids uh, or many teachers uh, not expressed uh, uh, reluctance to not want to return to the classroom unless they have their their face shields and, and hazmat suits on and whatever? Have many th- uh, teachers threatened not to come back at all?
1: So- on, I believe it was Thursday last week, across the state, teachers held caravans in various cities in, um, in solidarity with one another to say, you know, we are concerned about returning to the classroom in person, and um, there seems to be, and I haven't spoken to a bunch of teachers. Let me say, you know, I haven't done research on this. But I will say, based on the conversations and the um anecdotal information and Facebook groups and such and stuff like that, folks are concerned and don't want to go back in person and would much rather teach remotely and do what needs to be done from our homes in our spaces. And if we are going back in person Then folks are um, signing on to, like I said, purchase scrubs. Some teachers I've seen have started making contraptions of their own to um, uh, to seg. I don't want to say segregate. That's not that's a poor choice. To separate students and make sure that there are um, barriers that are put up so that there isn't any, you know, contact. And so. I'm not going that far. I, you know, I will wear masks. I will um, wear uh, face shields as needed, but um, that's not my, you know, my plan. Folks folks are not really wanting to go back here in Connecticut. Uh,
0: so a lot of comments. Kalisha uh, says, yes, Dr. Hope, you were phenomenal. I'll thank yourself. Uh, Marilyn says, yes. Said all of that. And a good friend of mine, Bruce Wokikia says, I'm in Georgia and things are a little different in a red state. I'd be curious to hear about what's going on down there in Georgia as far as returning back right to work there, Bruce. And I thank you for, for tuning in. Um, let's see. CDC has warned Congress of significant health problems if children don't absolutely. return to school. Okay. Mm-hmm. Explain, explain that. You're saying absolutely. Right. How is yeah, that? Yes. How- so,
1: well, first, it's, it's worth noting that the CDC guidelines have changed. And I'll just leave that there. There was on the onset, there were um, guidelines as it relates to social distancing, six feet. Then it was three feet, and then the guidelines have changed um, at, regarding uh, students returning to school in person. And so, a part of that, you know, if you are following the news and your reading outlets, uh, you'll see that there was some. Uh, talk about the updates about the coronavirus no longer going to the CDC and being transferred to. So there's a number of things happening with with the CDC guidelines. Let's first start there. But then let me say that there are um, studies that show and um, that that, well that say let me say that, that that say that one, there is a concern about younger students and the amount of oxygen and the flow of oxygen that goes to their brain when they have on masks for a long, masks for a long time. And so some parents have very real concern about the health implications because we don't know, we haven't um, done extensive research around the coronavirus and its its impact at at this point, but that um, the, Masks and oxygen—that there's there's definitely a correlation with that. We also know that, um, based on some of the, the the research and some things that I've read, that students. Excuse me, that students need to be in classroom because of their ability to interact with one another, their ability to have that camaraderie, the ability to engage and be with peers. That is one of the main things about education in our schools being in person, the ability to interact, the ability to engage, the ability to have a break. We haven't talked about the. Um, the 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 ways in which some of our students are living in their homes and the traumas that they experience on a daily basis. And in some cases, the only break that they get is when they come to school, which has a direct impact on their mental health, on their emotional health. And so all of those things directly impact how our students learn and why some say that our students need to go back because of their, um, their health concerns. So I I mean, I've heard that as well. So I I do agree that there is a need in that regard. But my question then would be, at what expense? So yes, students need to have that interaction. Yes, we know that students, um, there are benefits to students going back and being in class in person. However, we also know that the coronavirus is uh, airborne and it spreads through um, social contact, and so we know that to be true. And so, um, at what expense do we do? Do we have folks going back into our schools?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let me just get some people in here. And uh, Bruce says uh, school started today in person. Uh, in person today, uh, Barbara McLean says I'm in Florida. Things are a little different here. If you could elaborate I'm on that, uh, just a little bit there. Uh, Bruce also goes on to say, parents have the choice of in-class mm-hmm. or online education for the kids. Once you pick, you're not allowed to change your selection until the following semester. I would agree yes. with that. Let's make That's a choice. True. Stand by it. Right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Fateria sheet says, uh, exactly. How do you change guidelines that let you know that they don't care about the students, teachers, or the staff? I think we. <laughs> I think there's a lot of uh, agreement with that, about that. Uh, I paid Bruce to say this. Great podcast podcast is always Captain. I, I didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> uh, he says that. Um, uh, and Barbara says, in Florida, we have three choices for students mm-hmm. to go back to school. Uh, Bruce, have you discussed the increased and unreported child abuse and domestic violence produced by the lockdown? Uh, I talked about that in a couple of different episodes. Uh, I know that you know domestic violence, yes, he's absolutely right domestic violence and child abuse has been up. Have you all as teachers discussed that and how to be aware of that when kids come back to class? Is that been part of the conversation? Or-
1: we haven't talked about that specifically, not yet. I'm, I do know that um, in most cases there are conversations around recognizing, you know, students that are in distress and how to respond to students in distress, but that hasn't been a topic of conversation Um Specifically. And I will say, um, in reference to Ms. Barbara, that that is the same here in Connecticut. Our superintendents had to provide three options to the um, State Department of Education regarding how we might return back to school. So one option was full five days a week in-person, standard with no change. The second was hybrid. And then the third was fully remote. And um, I'm not sure who mentioned, but the same is here in Connecticut as well, where parents have the ability to elect whether or not they want to do virtual or remote learning or send their children back into the classroom. And so once that decision is made, then parents have to, or students will have to wait until the next um, semester to make the change.
0: Um, very good. Let's see a couple more classes here. Uh, a couple more. Um, we have class in both in online or both. That's what Barbara says. Uh, no, really is a good conversation. Thank you, uh, Debbie. That's obviously t- towards uh, the great uh, guest for today. Uh, Teachers are capable of looking out for themselves, those abused
1: are not. Well,
0: that's definitely true. Definitely true. Good reason well, to be back in school.
1: Can can he provide some uh, additional? What's What What do you mean by that? Teachers are capable of looking no, I, up. Themselves.
0: I I, th- I think what he's saying is is that we need to get some of these kids back to school because they're at home being abused all the time. So we need to get them away from their abusive situations. I think that's I think that's what Bruce is saying.
1: I believe so. So let so if I can, and this is uh, the educator in me to push back a little bit. We have um, social services. That's why most districts, most states have uh, DCF, DCFS, depending on what you call it in order to respond to those things. And so this idea that teachers and education is the wherewithal or the remedy for all of these things for you know is a, is a tad bit problematic. I, I will say that absolutely. Uh, the, our, our schools being in school is a safe haven. Absolutely. For a number of people. Teachers, uh, students, faculty, every, every, you know, it's a safe haven for a number of folks. However, looking for or expecting our schools to be the remedy for the increase that we're seeing is a band-aid when the solution is systematic and it's a systemic issue that if we don't address that, um, then we are missing the mark here. And so I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention that, that while I agree that the schools are a safe haven, absolutely. And I make sure I try my best to make sure that my classroom is a safe space. Um, there are some other underlying things embedded in the fabric of the United States that has to be addressed. And so unless we do that, um, whether or not the schools are open or not, students are still going to go home and go back into those environments. And so that's a separate conversation.
0: Yeah, right. Well, I I think that, Bruce and I would agree with that. I don't want to put words in the mouth, but I, but I think that he's in agreement with that. Um, and there are certainly some some serious problems out there. And you're and you're right. I can only imagine the emotional attachment uh, that happens uh, with a with a student and in um, teacher. And you know that you have to return this kid back to a, a, a dangerous situation. You know so. Um, i i want to talk i kind of want to move on from that a little bit and i pre- really do appreciate all the all the conversations about that but i want to talk about your journey out right so you grew up in what is the Deville? what is that called the New,
1: <laughs> new the new, new hall section
0: all right in uh-huh. new, new hall but they call it the Ville, right
1: when Ville. Mm-hmm.
0: okay mm-hmm. when you said that i'm like okay I, I grew up i knew some people who grew up and they always talked about the bill all right so okay. new hall so uh fairly at that time when i was growing up when i was in high school right i knew some kids there. And we were like, man, how do you make it out of there in the morning? So you grew up in that section. Mm-hmm. You made it out and got your doctorate of education. Yes. I want you to talk to us about that, the, your your background, uh how you made it out, how you were determined to make it, uh parental uh involvement, and, and just going on. Talk to us a little bit about that, especially to those who may listen and say, you know, here's a, a black woman who's made it. I can make it too. So talk about that if you will.
1: Okay, so first I will start and say that I was blessed to come into this world through some phenomenal people. My mother, she is on and I'm sure my father is there with her looking on, too. And so my parents were adamant about making sure that my siblings and I got our education. And my father, my father specifically always said, uh, get your smarts because once you get your smart you can't take it from you. And my father they sound like me, my aunt, yeah, they said the same my, thing. Okay. My father tells tells a story about how when I was a little girl, my eldest sister, I have a sister older than me, she could read and um I couldn't. And um I was upset that I could not read. And he continued to say to me, uh, if you practice, you'll learn, you'll get it. Practice, practicing you'll get it. And so from a very early age like I said, education was important and it was instilled. But when you fa- when I fast forward, not only was education instilled, but my parents made sure that they set, my siblings and I, but they set me up to succeed. So what does that mean? That meant that when it came time and I wanted, whatever I wanted to do, my parents made sure that they had, the, they provided the means for me to try it. And now my mom, at the time, she was a um, a CNA, and my father uh, is a maintenance worker. Was a maintenance worker. They're both retired. But as an adult, I wonder how on God's green earth were they able to take care of my siblings and I, and the folks that they've adopted and took and took in on such limited means. But they saw they still saw fit for me to go and take writing classes. They saw fit for me to um, go and. Uh, learn how to act. And so my second grade teacher, and I'm going to make this, I'm going to speed it up. My second grade teacher, Ms. Kim Francis, she taught me at Lincoln Bassett um, Elementary School, and she showed me the possibility of higher education. My godmother always talked about college, but Ms. Kim Francis was the first person to take me with my classmates to um, a college. He used to take us to UConn every year. And so I stepped foot on a college campus. And so I realized, huh, this might be attainable. She was a phenomenal teacher. And I said, mm, I want to be a teacher. So in the second grade, I voiced that I wanted to be a teacher. And Miss Francis spoke with my parents and New Haven had a teacher prep program. And so they put me on a teacher prep track and you fast forward. The second I'm- grade? So, so, so well from second grade on, they made sure that I was set up to do what I wanted to do. So the, the, the teacher prep track didn't happen until I got to middle school. That happened in the seventh grade. Okay. And so seventh and eighth grade, I was on the teacher prep track and um, went through high school. And then I wound up getting a scholarship to Southern through the teacher prep program which was a partnership between Southern Connecticut State University and James Hill House High School. And after attending Southern, I wound up, um, well, while at Southern, I joined a sorority. Shout out to my uh, A.K.A. sisters. And um, I, I joined a sorority. And I also found that Working in higher education was a thing that was actually a career, and so um, I watched a different world, and I knew that um, you know being on the top of campus was the way to go. And so, I was working in the higher ed for 15 years, and um, I ultimately decided to go back and get my doctorate because I wanted to move up. At that point, I thought I wanted to become a dean of students at a college. But during my time in higher ed, there was so much, um, I experienced a lot of things that kind of caused me to not want to be a part of the higher ed scene anymore. And so I ultimately left last year, which is how I got to teach high school. And so what I would say, you know, for parents that are out there, um, don't despise or don't shut down your child's lofty dreams. I told my parents I wanted to go to China and they helped me to with my church. My church was integral in making me who I am. The community folks, like I said, told me to get my hind parts in the house and um, they made sure that if I was out acting a, a fool or a donkey, depending on how you say it, if I was out act, cutting up, that they pulled my coattail. And... Um, that community, that sense of community is a part of the reason why I am who I am. And I had teachers of color, that's important. All throughout my schooling career, I had black and brown teachers, although, um, and those teachers made sure that I got the best education. And so I hope to do the same. I hope to you know, pay it forward in that way. Um, And so that's how I made it out. The community and my belief in God, you know, I believe that 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 God has a lot to do with this and his his um, predestination for my life. And so I I cannot not acknowledge that factor, too.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about women in academia. Uh, Do you think that there's enough women in academia? Obviously, you said you saw some things that were going on that kind of turned you off. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into it. I mean, we we have some tea. I mean, if you can spill some tea for us. Uh, so, if you talk about just a little bit about that, women in academia are there enough? Did you face any sexism and or racism as you were trying to get your doctorate and all that?
1: So, absolutely. So, first, let me say that there are there is a lack of black women. We need more black women in academia. Okay, from my perspective, my doctoral um, research focused on the lived experiences of black women in higher education, specifically in Connecticut in, in our Connecticut public colleges and universities. And one of the things that I found and that the research that I conducted showed was that because of the lack of or the. The yeah, because of the lack of black women in higher education, black women who are in um, higher ed academia experience, one, invisibility. They experience um, marginalization and they are often relegated to the outskirts. And that comes from um, not being able to show up in ways that others are show others show up. And so what, the, what, the, what do I mean by that? I mean, I, for example, and this is a real life example, I had a colleague come and ask for... Um, some input on how we can better serve our students who were homeless. And this is at the college level who were homeless and who needed food. And so I shared my thoughts and shared some things that I was working on for the institution. And um, I went to a meeting with some administration and I shared my thoughts, the same thing that I shared with my colleague who happened to be a white woman. And um, the, Administration at the time heard what I said, didn't acknowledge what I said. The white woman took what I said, wrote it up, although I had it written up as well, presented it. Uh, She was deemed um, a, a, a change maker, was promoted to a higher position. And at the end of the day, the thought, the concept, the initiative was something that I developed and I had come up with. But my work was, in my mind, appropriated and taken and given credit to another person. And that happens often um, in my conversations with folks, that this idea of I can take your knowledge or take your understanding, your expertise, and one, either not compensate you for it or not credit you for it's something that happens often. And that's where the invisibility comes in. My knowledge, my, my brain, what I have to offer, you see but you see that without seeing me. And um, that is a, a one of the main things that, well, not main, but that's one of the things that um, I think women in academia, black women in academia experience. And that, and also differing roles, but we know that there are different rules and for for black women and black folk in academia than there are for others. And so, um, whereas I teach now at the collegiate level. However, when I was first trying to get an adjunct position, I was told that I needed to go back to school and get a second master's degree in English. My, I have a master's of science degree in English ed. I was told you need to go back and get a master's of arts in English. Well, I know another girl who graduated with me, we graduated the same program, Southern Connecticut State University class of 2010 with our master's of science in English ed, a white girl, she wound up getting an adjunct position with the same master's degree that I had. And um, I actually had other teaching experience. She had not. She's a friend of mine. We had talked about her experience. However, she was able to get an adjunct position before I was. I was told, go back and get a master's of arts, and then when I had a elder black woman who decided to mentor me and take me under her wing, they told her that I needed to shadow her for a full academic year before they would allow me to obtain an adjunct position. So we're talking about differing standards, differing um, rules for black folk than for others. And so me being you know, a girl from New The first part of me was from the Ville. You're I said, gonna let it come out now, right? Let
0: the Ville come out now.
1: Yes, I was just like, <laughs> I ain't going back to school. I, yeah, I
0: wouldn't have went back to school either.
1: <laughs> right? I, I, I ain't shadowing her for a whole year when nobody else has to shadow. Shadowing isn't even a part of the requirements to become an adjunct here. So why do I have to jump through all these hoops in order to teach a class? And my mentor said, Kelly, sometimes you do what you have to do so that way they don't have a reason to tell you no. And... I called my parents, as I usually do, and had a conversation with them. And my father says what he usually says, get your smarts and and do what you need to do. And my mom equipped me with the fight and the tenacity and the wherewithal to keep going. And she was just like, oh, no, you do not let them stop you. If this is what you want, this is what you do. And I persevered. And And now I'm teaching at the collegiate level. Um. And I was teaching at multiple institutions, but I'm teaching at one now. But that's to say that this idea that there are differing standards and that the rules change, no matter um, it didn't matter that I had a doctorate degree. I was supposed to go back and get. Wait, a- wait! You had a,
0: you had a, you had your doctorate at this time, and it told so you go back and get a master's
1: degree. I, I was actually um, ABD, all but dissertation. So I was in the process of I, w- I would have been finishing, you know, within a year or so of my doctorate where the other person had their master's. But nevertheless, I was post, you know, master's study, but it would still go back and get additional education. Um, Nevertheless, um, those are some things when you talk about academia. And so when we talk about students needing to see and having motivation and hope, if you don't have folks that are reflective, either based on physical representation, race, gender, um, or folks that can't identify when you talk about socioeconomic status. Uh, luckily for me, I am, you know, it, it's my, my, I'm intersectional. You know, I'm a black woman from an urban area and, um, my parents were working class folk. I can identify on some areas, not all areas, uh, and so that's important with how we show up into these spaces. And if our students don't see it, then they start questioning, "Do I belong here?" There's an imposter, an imposter syndrome that um, we're not going to go into, but all you know, all of that is very real and um, shows up.
0: Absolutely, that's a fascinating story, and I'm very sad that you had to go through that and. I had actually thought about going back to get a, um, um, to become a teacher. I think we talked about this a little bit before. Become a teacher, and when I heard about all the stuff that they would make me do, even though I already have a master's degree, I'm like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> either you want, either you want me or you don't. <laughs> either don't, you don't. <laughs> right? Either you want don't. Yeah, yeah. Either, either you want me or you don't. I mean, here I, I know that there's a dearth of black male teachers, and here I am saying, okay, I'll do it. But you want me to go back to school for another two or three years? Nah. No, nah, no, nah, and I gotta run up bills and all that kind of stuff. So, so that that's that that's that's for that. So, um, so let's just chime in. People were amenin and uh all that kind of stuff. And um, Bruce is saying hi, Debbie, and Debbie saying hi, Bruce. I don't know if they know each other or not. I don't know what's up with that. Uh, wow. Uh, systematic racism. I play white fragility, but what is meant for you has come to pass. Destined for greatness. Uh, different standards, uh, that is so wrong every time again. Uh, thank God for your perseverance. Uh, yeah, cause I wouldn't have had a am answer to you. Uh, how do you think we can fix that problem in our schools? Is that problem not, which problem are you talking about? The systematic problems or the, uh, uh, people stealing, also as <laughs> people stealing your ideas problem? I mean, that goes on. How do you think we fix that <laughs> period in life, right? <laughs> Uh, I would love for my sons to see more black male teachers. Yeah, I would too. But I mean, well, there's no but. To it. I would love to. I would love to teach. But the finance, right? Yeah, going back to school and now, uh, for me, is not is not. I want it to be an option. But so, uh, so there was a question. Barbara McLean says, "How do you think we can fix that problem in our schools?" Um,
1: which problem, Miss Barbara? Yeah. Are you referring? Could, could you
0: identify which problems? Um, so we're going to switch gears for a minute here because it's uh, we're we're a little bit in here. So I want to talk about your uh, time at church. You are the head of a singles ministry. You've obviously mentioned your faith, and um, oh, well, before we get to that, yes, Barbara says uh, yes. The system, systematic problem. I'm still, yeah, I'm, I'm not still not sure right. which systematic problem you're talking about. Which systematic problem? Um, could you elaborate on which systematic problem you're talking about?
1: Yeah, um, there's lot of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them. So I want to talk about uh, your time at church. You've been very uh, vocal about your faith uh in your over the singles ministry in your church is that is that right is it still that correct That is correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So can you talk just a little bit about about your your work there
1: for a few moments? Yes. Yeah, so um I, I I'm I'm a Christian and I attend St Matthew's Church in New Haven, Connecticut under the leadership of Elder Kevin C. Hardy. Shout out Pastor Hardy and my St Matthew's family. And are they listening?
0: Are they listening? They, they should be listening.
1: To me. <laughs> well, number of the church folks are on are, are okay. on the line. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> so,
1: because again, I come from a community. All these folks, you know. Contribute to, you know, the, 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 woman you see before you. But, um, <clears throat> yes, it's called Purposed, Purposed Singles Ministry. And the purpose of the ministry is to provide an opportunity for unmarried folk to come together to one develop individually, because I think that that's important. That's a part of the, the, the mission, um, to make sure that we are able to come together to develop holistically as individuals as we're on pursuit for those who desire to be married later on in life or now in life. Um, And so we provide um, (laughs) um, (laughs) and so we provide opportunities for us to come together and um, one, study the scripture, but also to come together and um, do, I have ice cream socials, socialize to talk about things that are of concern to us, to come together and laugh, to come together and simply find a support in a community of folks who are in, in some cases, the same place. And to, in, in all honesty, to not lose hope. Because if you look at statistics and research and if you're a, a thinker or a person that likes to learn, then um, you are looking at what the research says. And as far as I'm concerned, if I look at the research as a black woman, 39 year old black woman, be 40 this year, the older I get, the more, the less likely it is that I will ultimately be married. And so if you look at those statistics and you think about that and you, you, you can become disheartened and wonder, okay, well, is it ever going to happen for me? So the purpose of the ministry is one to provide an opportunity for all of us to come together and, 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 um, learn and glean from one another and to support one another in our singleness. And so it's men and women, um,
0: but that, that's the, the, the gist of it. Yeah. So that's a, that's a totally a, a separate conversation that I really want to have as to how we can fix some of those statistics that you mentioned as far as uh, you know young men and women um, getting together and getting married. And I think that that would fix a lot of the problems that we could talk about. Um, my daughter is 22. And, you know, sometimes when I look at these knucklehead boys that are running around here. I'm like, you know, th- these guys just don't have it. But I want to say that for a different conversation, a different day. Maybe I'll have you back to talk about that kind of stuff. That's um, right
1: up my alley. Because then we can get into Will Smith and Jada and their entanglement. Well, I, want, I, and I, 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 want, I want to talk
0: about. I want to talk oh. about that. We'll leave. we we'll, we'll leave, we'll leave off on that. I want to talk about about that right now. But we can talk about the other. I don't. I don't want to get depressed about about other stuff. Let's talk about something that happy oh. we can laugh about. <laughs> this entanglements <laughs> that they had going on. Uh, I mean, obviously, it was a few weeks ago, but when we were texting and started getting this all set up, all, that had just dropped. So I want to hear all all the, all the, your wisdom and knowledge about these entanglements that, that they had going on. So, and now you can show us the veil. You showed us the educated part of you. you show us the veil.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so first, first, let me, let me say, let me say this, this, you know, I actually posted on my Facebook page at one point and that th- I saw a number of people posting, I'm entangled, I, you know, <laughs> entangled, and I was just taken aback because words have power and uh, what we speak, we manifest. I, I believe that what we speak, we manifest. And so this idea of being entangled, being bound in a way that is unhealthy is ridiculous and ludicrous to me. And so um, this when when the Red Table Talk happened, when the August um, Alcina's um interview and all that came up. Of course I watched it. I like to have those conversations with my sister girls and folks. And um one of the things that I guess troubled me was there was a phrase where and and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but there was a phrase that um, I believe um Jada Pinkett mentioned and she said um essentially I wanted to feel better about myself. Mm-hmm. And Um, that it, it, I get wanting to feel better about yourself, but what troubled me a little was prior to that statement, she had mentioned that he had come, she had come to meet him or come to know him, um, by her son and that he was in an unhealthy place and he wasn't doing well. And so, um, I am very of folks who monopolize off of others' folks' pain and see someone in a a tender state and use that as an opportunity to capitalize off of it. That that bothers me. I'm not saying that that's what she did. I'm saying that the statement that she made put me in that headspace. And so when we talk about relationships, I am just like, listen, if you are unhealed and you're broken and you haven't begun to do the work for your own self, Don't come over here with your foolishness. And so, and vice versa, if I have areas or tender spots that I haven't healed and I haven't worked on for my own self, let me not come to the table or come to you with my foolishness and expect for you to help me through that. No, I'm not, I don't want you to come and be, I don't want to be entangled. As a matter of fact, I I, like, so that whole scenario, um, troubled me. And then at the end of the red table talk, when they ended with bad marriage for life, I was like, absolutely not. What (laughs) what message are we sending out here to the folks that are watching, the folks that are are looking and that look at them as marriage goals? Um, We don't want To be in bad marriages and bad relationships, which is why the singles ministry at my, you know, that most churches have is important because it's about being whole individually, you know, know, being a whole person, your whole individual, authentic self, right where you are now before you connect with someone else. Because if you're not whole now, then you won't be whole when you link up with another person. And I think we saw that with them. So that's.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I got to be very honest. When I saw that, I mean, I'm not into that red table talk. Somebody sent it to me and I'm like, okay, I'll watch it. But uh, just the whole thing of her saying that stuff, first of all, it shows you that even though they had money, they were millionaires and they had careers and they still had this, she still had whatever stuff she had going on in her head. I mean, they would have been married for a while, I would assume at this point, right? This happened three years ago. they have been married 25 mm-hmm. years. So they like 22, 21 years into this marriage. And you still don't know who you are and can't figure out what's going on. And so she was saying, and Will was like, I'm out of here and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, you got to figure out you. And so I, I can appreciate that singles ministry that you have going on as far as when they say, Listen, you got to be a whole person in and of yourself. I can certainly, I can definitely appreciate that. And that was very shocking to me. That whole, whole everything she was saying was shocking. I was really kind of shocked that that Will Smith, as a man, somebody I kind of you know, this brother has together. I'm like, why are you doing this, brother? <laughs> why are you putting your, your why are you putting your laundry out here like this? So I was that whole thing was really really disturbing. And I would agree that they ended off with high fiving each other, with bad marriage for life. What? Mm-hmm. What is that? Right. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I asked the question before and they all said that they're all listening. So I want to get them all in here. Uh, Yes, we are here. (laughs) Uh, Yes, we are here. Cookie Latricia says that Uh, she's yes, she's got people. All right. Listen, I'm not going to roll up in New Haven. and start. Uh, Let's see. Um, Yes. St. Matthews is in the house. St. Matthews is near and far. Man, they're far away, too. Okay, okay. St. Matthews is here representing and supporting our family. Uh, Clementine, Clementine Johnson, Clementine. yes, we are here. We have an awesome We have an awesome God. So proud of you, Dr. Hope. Uh, George L. Jones says, I happened to stumble upon this. Very Thank good dialogue. Uh, what we speak, we manifest. Quoting you, Dr. Hope, you are phenomenal. That's from Kalisha uh, Rich. Uh, Rudy says, agree, Dr. Hope is awesome. Good show. Uh, George Jones uh, says, uh, I expect Jada as a parent leader and contributor to honestly know better. I expected it too, and they really Absolutely. didn't. That was very, very disappointing. Um, and go back the to
1: platform better too. I think that's important to note. When we have opportunities and we're given platforms to speak and to share, that there is a great responsibility with that. And so... I just feel like you know the you It was misused to, um, you know, in a way that was disheartened. I was saddened by what you know what I saw because I, we have a responsibility. I,
0: I, yeah, I think I think a lot of us are. It was very shocking, very surprising, disappointing, saddened, and I'm I, I left scratching my head. You know, like why would you do this? I, I would imagine it was unscripted, but that they were really shooting from the hip. There, they really. <laughs> they really, they really missed. They really missed. Um, so we'll finish off with this. Uh, well, actually two more points here. Uh, Barbara McLean says the problem of getting uh, more people of color into schools. That's the problem she wanted you to address. How do we solve that problem? Getting more people of color into our school systems.
1: So one I think is mentoring. I, uh, one of the things that I have been working on, and I guess I'm putting it out here in this this hemisphere because I just said what we speak, we manifest. I've been working on it. And so I guess I'm speaking it into existence now is providing an opportunity or platform where there is mentoring that happens early on. As I mentioned, I knew that I wanted to become a teacher in the second grade based on what I saw. And so there may be young people that are in elementary school right now that are contemplating teaching and We want to make sure that we are providing those opportunities for even those young children to get those experiences with playing around with what it means to teach. And that we're cultivating that, that there are uh, camps, whether virtual or in person, that they're able to go to in order to continue to feed that. And so that's one. Mentoring. The other thing, too, is providing the opportunity for folks that go to school to get their certification, that there are um, finances available to help offset the cost of education. You have folks that are leaving with student loans, and I know that there's about student loan debt. forgiveness, and all these other things, but folks are leaving schools with student loan debt, and the salaries that teachers make are ridiculous depending on you know what say i know there's some states where we're entering and teachers are making $24,000 per year and um it's you know that that's low and you know um ridiculous and so i think that providing funds for you know education is important i also think that um as I mentioned, I went through the teacher prep program. And so there are, at the collegiate level, they have minority fellowship programs. And so I think that if we can establish that in our local municipalities, that that will help with recruiting. And so I don't, getting teachers or, or teachers of color, I don't think that's really an issue. Retaining is an issue too, so we can get them, but can we keep them? And so- retaining well, what, what's, it, what's the and, problem with
0: retention what's the problem with retention? so
1: again when you talk you think about invisibility okay when you think about disregard uh when you think about burnout when you think about the expectation that's put on and for the most part if you have a teacher and that that's in an area and let's say they're from the community and they can code shift and they're able to speak and interact with the student and develop rapport with what some folks may call students that have behavioral concerns, more likely than not, if that teacher is able to reach those students that have behavioral concerns, that teacher then becomes a teacher for the students with behavioral concerns. So now you have a teacher that may have a classroom full of students who need extra, I'm going to say extra Love and care. Okay. (laughs) And so that leads to burnout, right? Right. And so that, that directly connects with retention. And you add that with finances. So I think mentoring, I think capturing and reaching out to students early. I also think from a community standpoint, for folks that are not teachers, if you have a business. Or you're into something, for example, sewing. A lot of schools don't have funds for enrichment activities, but there are programs and and folks that they're looking to come and do um, sessions with with young people to teach them skills. You may be able to reach students in a different way where they may want to go into that profession. And so I think mentoring is a a big part of it, finances to help offset the cost um, upon graduating. And then also testing. We have to also consider testing. A lot of folks specifically black and black and brown people struggle to pass the praxis tests and the certification exams. And so all of those okay. things.
0: Okay. Well, I, I didn't want to hear that last part. I don't like to hear that not passing tests. Uh, that bothers me. Um, so I appreciate that, that you gave, I mean, sorry to jump around there, but that was a question that we left unanswered. No I want to kind of finish it on a more, more fun note. Well, not that it's fun, but the Will and Smith, Will Smith, Jaded thing was was kind of
1: lighthearted,
0: yeah, lighthearted. <laughs> uh So Marilyn says, "Yes, Captain." The pain uh, was evident in the discourse. He August is a man outwardly, but uh, was a hurting a young man on the inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah there mm-hmm. Was, mm-hmm. It was. Seems mm-hmm. to me all three of them are kind of all jacked up. What did Biggie say? <laughs> more money, more problems.
1: Right. More money, said, more problems.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. Barbara McLean chimes in again says, "Your insight is exact." You know, I love sewing. <laughs> uh, the practice was my downfall. The practice was my downfall by, mm-hmm. by George Jones. Mm-hmm. I assume that's a practice. as a test to get
1: him inside. Yes. So for the most, so before in Connecticut, before you enter into a um, education program, you have to pass praxis one, which includes um, reading, writing and other things. And then You also have to pass praxis, um, two, and especially if you're going into secondary education. Um, If you're going into English, you have a a specific exam based on English. If you're going into math at the secondary level or um, seven through 12, you have a math exam. And so those exams can be difficult as a matter of fact. I took it multiple times and each time you have to pay. And so that is another cost that you have to add up. I took it multiple times before I was actually able to pass practice two. I passed practice one while I was in college, but passing practice two, it took me a little while to pass it. Um, and that that usually is the hang up for a number of people. So even answering the, the question, having opportunities for even mm-hmm. mentoring and tutoring in that way, how to pass praxis is something that's needed too.
0: Well, I was going to ask you that, but I don't want to go down that, that pathway. But, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, as long as we can get that information out there to people to get to do it. Um, so, you got a couple books, and we're going to leave off with this. You got a couple books. Could you hold them up for us? So we can see oh, them. Sure. Or, or... <laughs> um,
1: let me grab that. This one is in the background. This is.
0: Are, are they on Kindle? First of all, are they on Kindle?
1: Um, this, uh, black women speaking from within should be on Kindle. Yes. This is an edited anthology. I don't know if you can see it. This is an edited book and it's comprised of essays and experiences from various black women in higher education. I have two chapters. I wrote the introduction and all of that. And then there are chapters from various other women across the country that wrote about their experiences and their research about being a black woman in higher education. This can be found on Amazon. It can also be found on my website at www.kellykhope.com. And then this is my self-published book. And it is a, it's, um, it says to my sister's affirmations and annotations. And it's, this is a short read. It's a book of affirmations. Oftentimes black women um, and women in general, but black women often are very hard on themselves. And I wrote this particular book during the time when I was talking to my blood sisters and sisters by bond, I call it. And a lot of them were experiencing and voicing concerns about not, not being sure whether or not they were doing right by their children, not being sure what not not being confident that they were being and living up to their best potential. And so I was just like, wow, let I wanna affirm you in a way that um, you can take with you wherever you go. So the Book of Affirmations is a a book that I put together that just provides some short sayings and blurbs just to remind you that you are more than enough and um, you are worthy. And so both of these are located on Amazon. The This book here is through a publisher, Peter Lang. And so I let me give a disclaimer. If you go on Amazon and you find this, please note that I, this is my first time using a publisher. I wanted to go through a publisher just so that I can have the experience, so that I can help other folks through that process of getting your book prospectus accepted. And so um, there are glaring differences between self-publishing and publishing with a publisher. And one of those differences, and this is that podcast book, one of those differences is when you self-publish, you get to determine how much your book costs, which is why this book is 1095. And when you publish to a publisher, they determine how much your book costs, which is why this is dramatically more. And um, so you'll see that um, reflected, but those are the two books.
0: Very good. Thank you for that. Uh, to all those out there who are thinking about uh, publishing a book, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's definitely important. Uh, so let's see, uh, Marilyn and and that Thomas says, uh, Captain Hunter, thank you for promoting this positive, prominent voice to your listeners. Dr. Hope has the thank type you. of influence that our community needs. Listening from Bel Air, Maryland, a former New Haven resident with family and church in Connecticut. Thank you for for tuning and listening. Uh, thank you, sir, from Debbie, uh, says uh, thank you sir this was amazing forum mm-hmm. looking forward to more soon uh we need more combos like this hey, listen i'm trying i'm going to uh promote myself a little bit i put up the banner at the end at the, at the bottom of the screen there uh, you can go back and listen to previous episodes i've got a lot of uh, lawyers phds uh people talking about uh, uh um black women's hair i have another episode coming up about uh, talking about many women who are bleaching their skin i believe that it's very important to love yourself i don't care uh what you look like or what color your your hair is if you're white with uh if you're a white person with red hair you ought to love that i think if you're black uh with dark skin you ought to love that and this idea of bleaching their skin and doing all this kind of stuff to your head that which is ultimately damaging in the long run i think it's very 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 unhelpful. That's why I can appreciate when you say that it's very important for how you present in the classroom. And we need positive images in the classroom. I always thought it was very important for me when I was a police officer, uh, when I showed up on scene, I thought it was very important today. You know, sometimes I wore a white shirt that let everybody knows I was in charge, right? And sometimes, as Bruce will know, uh, if he's still here, that, we wore the stripes on our shoulders that showed everyone else that uh, we were the supervisor. So it's important how you present yourself, and I, and I believe that, and I always will believe that. So I, I can appreciate your your thoughts about that. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Benny Hope Sr. says, Kelly Hope, the table's been prepared for you. Maybe oh. that's the red table. I don't know what he's talking about. No, table. that's my
1: father. Oh,
0: okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, uh jan m lewis says thank you i really enjoyed the conversation good job good job dr hope i i agree thank you thank so much you, for coming on i really want to have you back on to talk about some more stuff there's so much more we could talk about um thank you so much for for coming I on the show you. thank you so much for all the listeners that you have hopefully they'll continue to tune in yes, tune <laughs> but, uh, in. But, yes. um so thank you everyone i, I really appreciated it and uh, we learned a lot thank you so much and so without any more ado, no more questions or comments, we're going to cut it off right here. Thank you so much um, and uh, much love and much peace. Thank you all.
1: Night, everybody.